Welcome to the Transformations with Jane podcast. I'm your host, Jane Nakata, a coach for women who want to live their best life wherever they may be. If you want to hear real stories about people living life their way, and you want to learn about having more peace of mind and confidence, then this is the podcast for you. I hope you'll enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Transformations with Jane podcast. I'm your host, Jane Nakata, a coach for women and a podcast consultant here in Fukushima Prefecture, Japan. So today I have a very special guest. I think I say this every episode, but perhaps today was one of my biggest fangirl moments uh, when Angela Ortiz came on the show. Now, we recorded this just two days after the earthquake, uh, the large earthquake that happened just off the coast of Fukushima. And so both of us were feeling a little bit, perhaps a little bit (laughs) jarred or nervous as we were speaking, um, having just experienced this large earthquake a few days earlier. But we had an amazing talk, and I really hope you will not only enjoy but be moved by the story that Angela has to tell of finding her her feet as some as a social impact entrepreneur after the 2011 earthquake and tsunami so she is responsible for helping a lot of people so soon after the the disaster happened but she also created some nonprofit organizations called place to grow and that continues to support Tohoku even now 10 years on. And that is, I feel, is just amazing. So, yeah, today, now I have to warn you that you, if you have not processed 2011, you know, yet, or perhaps you are still holding on to a lot of trauma around that event, perhaps this is not the episode for you. But I do want to say it's not sad. Perhaps I think you'll be moved. I think you will be invigorated by listening to it. Um, Yeah, I think both Angela and I had a lot of emotions while we were recording this. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. I think it's great. And I'm really glad we were able to capture some of the events that happened on 2011, uh, on on March 11th, sorry, 2011, but also some of the progress that we've had since then. So anyway, enough from me. Let's hear from Angela. Hi, Angela. Welcome to the Transformations with Jane podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Jane. Yeah, so it's. I'm feeling like sort of got a bit of a star on the show today. You might be there. <laughs> Oh, you might trying. be a bit surprised um, because I've been watching what you've been doing for a long time and I'm just so impressed and amazed with all the things you are doing for people in Tohoku. So it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for making time to come on. So for those of our the listeners who uh, who don't know who Angela is, could you give us a little bit of a, a self-introduction and tell us a little bit about what you do and who you help? Sure. Sure. So I'm originally from the U.S., though my father is Colombian, so I'm from mixed heritage. And I immigrated or we relocated to Japan when I was a child. So I grew up here. Um, And originally I went into education and then transitioned into social impact nonprofit after the 311 disasters. And currently I work here in Tokyo um, in corporate uh, ad, like advocating and educating on how companies can be more socially, social and environmentally sustainable. So there's a lot of education speaking on these subjects, as well as des- I also do a lot of work designing social impact programs. And on the nonprofit side, I actively lead uh, various initiatives throughout the year, supporting communities that are still rebuilding in the Tohoku regions, mainly Miyagi Prefecture, but also in Fukushima and in Iwate as well. Yeah, so much going on for you. I don't know how you fit it all in. It seems like a lot, right? (laughs) There are many hats. Many hats, yeah. These last 10 years. Yeah, you don't do it. Just been a whirlwind. Yeah. 
when this recording comes out, it's going to be about the 15th of March. So uh, during March, I'm sort of focusing more on stories from people about what happened on 3-11, 10 years ago, which, yeah, we're having the 10th anniversary this year. A bit of a milestone, especially for, you know, us living in the, what is the disaster zone, that, wow, it's been 10 years, look look how far we've come, um, and look, <laughs> look how far we still have to go a little bit as well. But could you tell us a little bit about your experience of what happened on that day, on the day of 3-11? Where were you what were you doing? I'm sure you can remember. I don't think Absolutely. we'll ever forget, will we? <laughs> no, indeed. So as I mentioned, originally I went into education as a career and I was in Tokyo in the kindergarten redecorating the bulletin board. And Japan often gets earthquakes. And so when the students and the teachers started going upstairs and let's take the children under the table, I was a bit skeptical going like, ugh. They're overreacting. But of course, I appreciated that they were following procedure. But I didn't think that I would have to move. And I continued to just, you know, go about my business until the shaking didn't stop. And this was the first time I've ever experienced an earthquake of that magnitude. And I've been here 30 years. So suddenly I find myself upstairs helping the children were under the table and it starts shaking like I've never felt before. And then books start falling and stuffies are falling and glasses are falling. And I looked at my sister-in-law. I worked with my sister-in-law. We looked at each other in our eyes and we were like, oh, my God, what is happening? After the shake subsided, we immediately took the children out to the park and, you know, a flat area and the whole neighborhood uh, well, it was a neighborhood that had a lot of foreign families. So people were out in the streets, terrified, and the alarms started going on. But the alarms here in Japan, like, it's not clear. It's not exactly clear what they're saying. So it's just sort of muffled sounds in Japanese. And uh, there were so many mothers, especially on the street in the afternoon, crying, freaking out, families in the park. So I found myself running between the school and the park, just comforting people and saying, no, don't worry, we're high, we're up on a hill, we're not going to see any waves, um, and also this is where you should be located, and then just catching up. And obviously as teachers, we started calling parents, trying to get in contact with everybody. After about two hours, uh, my sister-in-law came to me and she said, okay, Angie, you can go. Uh, well, half of the students' parents came to pick them up, but there were a couple children whose parents were still we were still trying to get through to. And my sister-in-law, who lived very close by, she's like, you go, go find your kid. So I remember, usually I would take the bus um, to home and back. So I remember running down the hill, and the buses weren't working, so I just I pretty much just ran home. It wasn't that far away. It was maybe like a 30-minute run, <laughs> jog, slash walk. And just before I turned the corner to pick up my daughter at the after-school care, she was about eight years old at the time, I ran into her English teacher from her school, a foreign man. And I said, oh, my God, is everybody okay? And I was like, oh, how is Tony? And he just kind of smiled at me and he was like, your daughter was surprisingly okay with everything. And then later I found out that my daughter was like, not laughing, but she was like, oh, it's okay, guys. She was very animated. She's a very like gutsy type of character. And that suddenly like filled me with like, you know, relief. And at the same time, when I was running home, I had very vivid memories of seeing the Hanshin earthquake, the Kobe earthquake as a child. And I but I had flashbacks of those images on TV. So I picked up my daughter. We went home. We grabbed a couple supplies and we went back up to my brother's house. And that was when we saw the tsunami impact. And my younger brother lives at that time was living in Sendai with his wife and his daughter, who was three years old. So obviously we were worried about him. And my parents live in Aomori. So we, we kind of understood that, OK, they were out of harm's way, but definitely the earthquake would have impacted their lives. So we were trying to get through to my younger brother, Jesse, and we couldn't, but we saw his messages on Facebook going back and forth with his wife. And I remember he was like, oh, stay away from the roads. Uh, stay away from the bridges. They're not safe. And then his wife was responding back, but we couldn't get through on a phone call. And at the same time, we're watching these like black waves, you know, crush the coastline. So, and then the rest is really quite a blur, but I just remember being terrified and so grateful that we were up on a hill with my other siblings and we were able to get through to Jesse, I think a couple hours later or early the next morning, but I don't really. And then from that point, I kind of black out. 
I don't know what happened between then and the 14th. Even to this day, like my memory is like all blurry. Wow. Next thing yeah. was. I remember yeah. that um, not being able to get in touch with people was just so horrific on that day. Mm. Like um, I think it, in our, you know, here in Fukushima, after the shaking stopped, I happened to be in, um, I was actually pregnant at the time. I was seven oh, months wow. pregnant. Yeah. That was fun. Um, and I was out shopping. And I'd just gotten in my car and I was just sort of leaving this car park. And thankfully, it was sort of an open, flat space. It wasn't like a car park building underground or anything at Dear God. Um, and, you know, after the shaking stopped, being like it was probably a f- five minutes later, I got my first phone call come through. And it was my parents-in-law in Totori Prefecture saying, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And after that, there was just nothing. People... I, people couldn't contact me and I could not contact my family in New Zealand. I couldn't get on the internet. Yeah. My internet was down and this was before iPhones, right? That nobody, yes. nobody, well, there were iPhones, but you had to be pretty sort of, I don't want to say geeky, but yeah, you had to be <laughs> pretty. It was definitely before they were common. They weren't normal, right? They weren't, yeah. yeah, they weren't common. That's right. And yeah, my internet was gone. I didn't have an iPhone. I was on my little karaoke, my flip phone punching madly, trying to text people that I was okay and things. It was a nightmare. So, yeah, I can totally, yeah, remember that feeling of not being able to get in contact with people. It was so, so hard, yeah. But in saying, you know, we just had a a, a large earthquake two days, two days mm-hmm. ago, right? And it was a completely different experience. Even though it wasn't quite of the same magnitude, people were freaked out, but messages were getting through and we could contact people and say, are you okay? And that was something that was really different and was quite a relief to be able to just message everybody straight away and say, I'm okay. You know, I noticed that too straight away um, talking with my fiance just the other day when the earthquake happened, I w- and I told him, I was like, oh, it's different now. You know, people can mark themselves safe on Facebook. I was watching the news and people were like live tweeting from the area. And I, and I noticed, I was like, wow, I, I felt, kind of like relieved that I was like, wow, okay, so there's, there's some progress, there's some growth in what we went through. Um, and I felt a bit comforted. Yeah, definitely. So what happened on the 14th when your memory comes back? So my next memory, I mean, I do remember being glued to the TV and watching all the, the news of like the train stations shut down all over and people stuck all over Tokyo. And then no idea what we did on the 12th and the 13th. And then on the 14th, I went down to get a coffee at the Rapongi Hills Taya Starbucks. And I bought a newspaper and I was reading and there were articles all about the tsunami. And there was a story of a mother in a car and her daughter got swept away through the window. Or, And I just remember feeling like in my gut so sad and like... I don't know what the feeling was because it wasn't sympathy and it wasn't pity. It was just like I was incredulous that this could be happening here in Japan, so close to home. And I felt emotional about it. And then right at that moment, I got a phone call from my sister and she was in Aomori. Now, her and her husband were actually in Australia at this time, but they happened to be visiting my parents. So my sister calls and she says, Ange, Dad is in a town called Minami Sandiku today. And as you may have known, he left on the 11th night, actually, as a driver for some Norwegian journalists that had arrived in Aomori pretty much hours after the disaster and had um, hired him to drive them. But on the 14th, he landed in a town and it was the first time he was able to actually directly communicate with survivors and have a conversation about what they needed and what they were going through. And he called and shared this information with my sister. She called me and she said, we're thinking of putting together a volunteer team. Will you come? And at this point in time, my brother who was living in Tokyo, who I was staying with, him and his wife were making plans to evacuate to Osaka, where my sister-in-law was from. They had a young son. I think he was like six months old at the time. So while I understood this need for them to find safety at all costs, I absolutely felt compelled 
to be part of this initiative. And I remember before she even finished asking me, I was just like, yes, absolutely. I'm there. I went to Shibuya on the 16th. I was able to get my finances in order. I went to Shibuya and it was about 5.30 p.m. And I don't know why I have this memory, but I remember it almost felt like the ash from um, the the ash and the snow from from the disaster up there was in Shibuya. I know this is illogical because there was no there was no way that it would be snowing in Tokyo, but that's what I remember seeing. And everybody had masks on, and it was five thirty p.m. and all the shops were being shut down, and there was this weird, eerie feeling. And I just remember going like, "Wow, this is not." Uh, Japan that I know. I don't know where I am. I feel like I'm in some sort of strange <laughs> alternate world. Mm. But I got a ticket and my daughter and I flew out on the 16th to Aomori. And my brother called me, my older brother who was in Tokyo, he called me the night before and was like, Ange, this is your last chance. We have one seat left in the car to go to Osaka. Um, are you sure you're not going to come with us? And I said, no, I'm going to Aomori. And I did. Wow, so I'm I'm so impressed that your instinct was to go towards the danger, not the danger, but to go towards things yeah. at exactly the same time. Like we're talking the 14th, right? So that's yeah. Monday we're talking. So 3.11 was a Friday, and on Monday I was loading all of my personal possessions into my car and driving away from – um, from Fukushima, yeah. I uh, at this point, you know, like the the power plant had exploded once, or mm-hmm. thing, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, we were like, okay, we may never see our house again. This may become a ghost, a nuclear wasteland, and a ghost town. So we packed up my dog. We packed everything we need to like potentially camp on the side of the road if we had to. And we, all our precious documents and, and things and some like, oh, I think it was like two or three changes of clothes and just drove mm-hmm. away um, in the opposite direction, which eventually we ended up at my husband's house in Toturi, which was nice that we were able to even leave. We had enough gas yes. to, to leave. A lot of people yes. here just had nothing in their car on the day. They were driving around on the smell of an oily rag on the day that um, the earthquake happened and there was just not enough gasoline to go around. And Mm -hmm. we never got new supplies here in Iwaki because no one wanted to come uh, to Iwaki in particular because it was next to the power station. That's the city next to the power station. So, yeah, we were incredibly lucky to to be able to drive away. But, yeah, the fact that you were just dead set on going towards that, I'm just, yeah... Amazing. Grateful. So what happened when you got to Aomori? I arrived in Aomori on the 16th and it was like you hit the ground running. Like there was this energy in my parents' home. Um, My sister had already started a Facebook page. Um, They had thought of a name for the volunteer group. There was already donations coming in from Facebook, thanks to my sister Paula and her husband Andrew's initiatives. Uh, because my father had been hired once, he was able to well, hired by journalists. They had a special pass from the police. Without okay. that, we would not have been able to get a, like a renewal of that pass to get on the highway. Because right now the highway was shut down for any non-essential vehicles. That's right. So once I got to Aomori, I felt instinctively like I knew what to do, and I went and contacted all the hotels, um, shops. Uh, we, you know, asked for donations from people living in Aomori and. Just all day long, people started coming to the school and donating supplies. At the same time, we had donations trickling in from Facebook. And so we would rent a truck, a two-ton truck, and then we would fill it up. And then we were like, oh, we still have more money. Let's rent another truck. And there's more supplies coming in. Okay. So the first day, I was pretty much boxing up supplies as people were dropping them off. And then the second day, I delegated that to one of the new volunteers. And I went out and started talking to hotels about getting toothbrushes. And um, I started doing PR. And then cable television came. And we did a quick like news update on what we were doing. Uh, we, my sister was constantly taking photos of our work and posting them on Facebook. And donations would come in. My mom was making the meals. My younger sisters were watching the, the little kids because we had you know, three-year-olds and two-year-olds there. And it was amazing clockwork. At 
Then on the 16th as well, my younger brother, Jesse, and his wife showed up. So they had evacuated from Sendai into Yamagata. And his stories were just, I mean, they would make your, you know, you just get like horrible tingles of what they had to get through just to get up there and how to find gas from, you know, abandoned cars. And it was just incredible, um, incredibly non-functioning society stories. And But it was great to have their energy. They're both really hilarious people. So suddenly there was a bit of humor in the work. There was jokes. Uh, we were so happy to have him on board. And of course, he's from that area. So he immediately knew people to contact. And we just put together a plan. So I got there on the 16th. And on the 19th, we had three two-ton trucks full of supplies. And we had a destination. And we'd gotten the passes from the police. And money was coming in from Facebook. And we had just enough gasoline to get there and back. And we had one metal tank filled with extra gas in case we got stuck. And so we took off on the 19th at five in the morning, headed towards Minami Sandiku with the idea to give these supplies to the families that were living at the Shizugawa Hinanjo, which is the emergency shelter, based on the conversation my father had had with mothers there on the 14th. Wow, it's, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm so amazed that you could do this. It just seems like there was just the right people in the right place at the right time with the right skills and you had that base in Aomori to come from because, you know, the rest of anywhere nearby those places just wasn't functioning to be able to have that that space and to come from there where they had, you know, where there was some gasoline and things. No, exactly. And just... at this time, the there was a, a uh, dramatic plea from a foreigner in Ishinomaki who somehow made it to CNN, made it on CNN and, and explained what was going on there. And I think that was the 15th or 16th because volunteers just started flooding up to Ishinomaki and even... I think Fukushima people were too scared to, but people were going into South Miyagi to help. And it was completely blogged, right? They were, they've been how to say that, bogged down with traffic and they were strict um, saying you can't go so far. And there were all these regulations in place, but we were coming in from the north. So no one even was like yeah. expecting it. <laughs> Nobody noticed you. Yeah. There was no, exactly. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you're aware, but um, official NPOs and official organizations actually are not allowed to enter disaster zones until local government gives their okay. But because we weren't an official organization, there was no nothing really to stop us. Wow. And I didn't know this until later. So what you were saying about right time, right place. Yeah, it, it really was a crazy sort of coming together of all the elements that made this possible. And yeah, and I think like people just cannot imagine what it was like. There was just nothing. There was no food and no yeah. no gas and then Bring no water, no mix. buildings. Yeah, bring and no roads. <laughs> bring more no people roads. into the mix to volunteer. Doesn't always work out well. Yeah, that it's sometimes it can no. cause more trouble. Yeah, but yes, you guys were able true. to secure your route back out of the, there. Um, you know, without being a burden on you know being a burden, but helping. Yeah, that's, that's yes, and we had an interesting team of characters because, like, me and my father, and my brother Jesse, um, are definitely like forward, fearless, like, okay, we'll just do it. We'll figure it out. But then we were complimented by my brother-in-law, Andrew, who was very, you know, methodical and, and really thought about, okay, well, we do have to get back. We do have children. We do have other things that we need to be concerned about. And, and it was an amazing uh, team, a mix of characters that came together to make it a success. And then something really strange to top this all off, on the 18th, we go to the Hotel Almori that I used to have a part-time job at many, many years ago. And they had donated all sorts of supplies. And then one of my former colleagues came up to me with a package and said, and there's one of our former colleagues. He lives in Minami Sandiku, the town you're going. Please give this to him. It's newspapers and letters from his grandmother. And I hadn't seen or talked to these people in, you know, six, seven years but of course, I felt like I couldn't say no. So I took the package and got into the truck. And then I looked down and at his name, Yosuke Watanabe, and I suddenly saw his face in my mind. And I remembered this guy. 
And then I was like, okay, so we have another goal now. It's to try and find this Watanabe Yosuke. And I found out that he was working at a place called Hotel Kanyo. So on the 19th, we had sort of like two missions. If we could deliver this package and drop off all the supplies. But what happened, I was so not prepared for. Yeah, what what happened next? Did you find him? (laughs) I'll have to tell you one more story about the night before. Okay. my dad has like the donations in cash to help us pay for the, the, the tolls, et cetera, and, any, and also the rentals of the trucks. Um, and he loses his wallet while going to fill up the car. And at the same time, we lose the hubcap of one of the trucks because we're putting in like, extra gas and stuff. So suddenly I get these calls going, shit, we don't have, dad's lost his wallet and we don't have the money. And that also has the police pass. And then the boys call me going, we've lost or misplaced the hubcap for the truck while looking for the hubcap in the snow. Because Almody's covered in snow at this point. Mm-hmm. We find dad's wallet. Oh, my God. <laughs> we hadn't lost that hubcap. We wouldn't have found his wallet. And I just remember we all arrived back at the house. The trucks are packed. And we're like, oh, my God. What the hell? But okay, here we are. We've got everything ready. Okay, guys, get some sleep. We're leaving at five in the morning. And then the next morning, it's a beautiful blue sky. The sun is shining. And we had teams of two. So two, a driver and a co-pilot, a navigator in each truck. And then my dad was in the Prius. And so we drove. We got on the highway, no problem. We were able to actually get gas. Of course, there was a huge long line. But, you know, the only other vehicles on the highway are policemen, Japan self-defense forces, like these big trucks, um, ambulances and fire trucks. So relatively, you know, very little traffic. We get there in about four hours and then we start, we get off the highway and we start heading out to the coast. And I just remember driving along these windy sort of mountain roads. And then suddenly we cross over this bridge and then I just see absolute destruction the whole it was just a sea of broken wood and rubble everywhere but not like standing buildings it was like churned you know debris everywhere like rocks and and it was just so like destroyed to such small pieces i thought oh my god someone came in here with a sledgehammer or someone put this town in a washing machine like i'd never seen something like that with my own eyes before but i wasn't compelled to like stand like stop and gawk I just remember feeling even more of an urgency of like we have to get to the shelter we have to get to the shelter and then eventually we we drove up to the shelter and I remember seeing a few men young men um they had some cuts and bruises and I remember wondering oh are we gonna see you know bodies or what what level of destruction am I gonna see and then we went around the back and asked the mothers to take the supplies. We're here to drop off supplies. And they immediately said, oh, no, 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 we can't accept your supplies. <laughs> like, yeah. what? This, what? Why can't you expect, you know, take these supplies? And they were like, no, 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 we have to go to the home boot. Like, you need to go to the official, like, office in town and drop them off and register them. And and I was I was extremely disappointed and dumbfounded but at the same time, I understood like, oh, yeah, OK, they've they've built a sort of structure now, even though everything's gone. So I can't, I also did respect the fact that they had really gotten themselves together. They had organized in such a short time. Um, but I felt frustration with the Japanese way of just following arbitrary orders when it was so clear that the, the lotion and the diapers, they needed it there. So it would get to them eventually. But it was like roundabout. So we just told the mothers, you know, grab what you need. And some of them actually did. And I was like really happy to be able to drop some off. But then we had to go to the office. The office was another sort of like, I, I just, I remember feeling scared to walk in there because I didn't know what to say or what to do. And around me was so much chaos. And there was trucks coming in and out, military trucks and helicopters landing and American military and Japanese military and firefighters and and hundreds of people like survivors, you know, unshaven and sort of looking really ragged. And and we walked in there and we said, okay, we've got supplies. Where's the office? I just asked those direct questions and people just pointed us to where to go. And we said, okay, where can we drop off these supplies? And surprisingly, 
the locals there were actually quite flexible. And they're like, okay, yeah, we'll take you to a, a Hinanjo, a shelter that hasn't gotten any supplies yet. And at that time, we decided that we would split up. So the boys driving the trucks would go drop off the supplies. And my father and I would go try to find Yosuke. And so I got in the Prius with my dad and we drove down on mixed information. We weren't sure if the bridge that connected the valley to the sort of the peninsula where the Hotel Kanyo was had been fixed or not. Um, but as we got there, we saw that there was a temporary military bridge in place. And I remember just sighing with relief going, okay, I don't know where we're going, but at least we're closer to it. And then we saw this, we, we come upon this giant, giant hotel built onto the cliff, the side of this bay. And it was huge for this tiny town. And so then we walk in the front, or actually I think my father stayed in the car and I walked in the front lobby and it was dark and there was a whiteboard and a generator and, you know, again, people looking very sort of chaotic, like their eyes had no like function to them. They were just like glass, like sort of robotic. And I said, hi, hello, um, my name's Angela. I'm looking for Yosuke. Is he here? And these people were just like their jaws on the floor staring at me. Like, like who are, are you? you? Where did you come from? <laughs> yeah, what are you doing here? Kind of thing. And I, I didn't know like what to do. So I just, I think that made me like extra bubbly. I'm like, hello. <laughs> Hi. Um, and so the lady kind of nodded at me and she disappeared. And I waited there sort of confused about whether she was just leaving me there. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, I think it was like three or four minutes later, the Yosuke comes out and, you know, he's unshaven with his ragged cloak uh, jacket on. And he's like looking at me like his eyes are popping out going, oh, my God, Anjana, mm. what are you doing here? And I said, hi, you know, I came from Aomori here. This is for you. Um, I don't know what our conversation, where our conversation went to, but I remember seeing him. He was both like completely floored and also so relieved and happy to see me. And so I said, you know, we have to run because, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the, the first explosion of, of Fukushima had happened already. And we knew that the airwaves were sort of all over the place and it had started to rain that a couple like an hour earlier. So we were quite, um, I said, we had this urgency to get in and get out. Right. So I said, look, I'm going to call you later. Um, and then my father and I drove back into the town, but there was no reception. So we lost touch with the boys. So we headed out back towards the highway in the hopes that they would kind of figure out to do the same thing. And as soon as we got reception, we waited by the side of the road. And about 30 minutes later, they showed up. And I just remember we were all sort of like, whoa, again, sort of relieved and, and running on adrenaline. And then Andrew, my brother-in-law was like, guys, we need to get out of here. It's raining. There's radiation risk. Uh, let's go. And then we jumped on the highway and we drove back to Aomori. Yeah. Like all of this is happening with, in the background, this like festering nuclear disaster, like exactly. becoming even more disastrous by the second in the background while you guys are doing this. And yes. yeah, at the time, nobody knew where is the radiation gone? Like we didn't really know, right? That people were just guessing, okay, the wind's blowing this way. So it's probably heading over there. So let's go in the other direction. This is, that was literally all we could do at the time, wasn't it? it was and like, CNN was making it seem like, you know, the Chernobyl, like, like we could die tomorrow if rain, if radiation rain hit us. And so there was a lot of confusion uh, for us who had contact to news sources. Yeah. Um, Especially then, non non Japanese news sources, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I had that as so, well. Like my family in New Zealand are saying, "Get the hell out of there! What are you doing? You're a pregnant woman. Why are you still there?" And I'm like, "Well, we don't even know if we can go anywhere. If we get in our car and drive around, that's it's much safer to be in our home. If you know, <laughs> like mm. you know, we don't want to be stuck on a road somewhere." Um, yeah, yeah, we, we had the same yeah. the same sort of reaction from relatives. So in Colombia, in the U.S., and in, in Australia, we had emails and phone calls coming in saying, get out of Japan. What are you doing? You can come stay with us. You know, we had relatives offering to put us up. And at one point, I remember sitting down with everybody in the living room going, okay, guys, we actually need to address this. You know, we, we talked about, like, should we send the women and children off? And I just remember thinking like, okay, well, clearly I'm not in a part of that because I should be leading this. I don't know why I felt that, but I, I did feel strongly um, that I would be on the boys team. I don't know what that <laughs> means, but, um, 
But, it, you know, it was an interesting conversation because we all openly shared our fears and said, you know, well, should we do that? Should we go to the U.S.? Should we take up, you know, grandpa's offer? And then it was my younger brother, Jesse, who, sh- who just sort of like shut the whole conversation down by saying, you know, I don't want to curse on your, your body. (laughs) Guys, you know, this is, this is our home. My wife is half Japanese. My kid is half Japanese. This is where my friends are. And I just remember going like, you put it in perspective, brother, this is our home. Why would we leave it now when it needs us the most? We grew up in Japan. We're not going anywhere. And that, and then it was just like, everyone was just like, oh yeah, of course. Duh. Okay, great. So let's get on with things. So what do we do next? (laughs) That was literally like the, the, that's what happened. So fast forward a little bit further, yeah, things started to get better slowly. And so what what's happening now with with what you do in Tohoku? Wow, ten years. Yeah. Um of so let me quickly connect the dots. So yeah, we, please we do. ended right. up evolving <laughs> into jump. an emergency yeah. response nonprofit. That was in, registered in June. We established a base in Minami Sandiku, working in partnership with the hotel. We supported local families through the like needing food and water to needing clothing, to needing financial support, to needing to rebuild the social fabric of their community. And along the way, certain projects really stuck. And in 2015, I rebranded. We, we sort of split the organization and Part of it became um, a business, a farming business, and part of it re-registered as a, a nonprofit called Place to Grow. And that was when we decided we're going to focus solely on activities that bring the community together and foster a sort of re-establishment of trust and cooperation between community leaders. Because one thing, the disaster and the sort of the second disaster, which is the recovery, it really tears apart families and neighbors and businesses. And rebuilding that is not the hard hardware support of like, you know, uh, trucks or boats or buildings. It's the soft part, the soft skills of leadership and, and community activities that help people trust and feel safe again. So that's what we do now. We have fitness. We use fitness and language exchange as a way to um, educate children in the subject of communication and confidence. And then by focusing on the children, obviously we naturally need to communicate then with the parents and the education leaders of the town and also the business leaders. And we work together to provide opportunities for people to connect, become inspired. So it could be a party, it could be an educational workshop, um, but basically it's it's a variety of different events that bring people together. And then the last thing I'll add is that we focus a lot on volunteer education and self-development in social impact. So how did you know how to do all of this is my question, because it sounds like you were a kindergarten teacher. (laughs) (laughs) And then suddenly. That's right. That's right. You know, 10 years ago, you were working in a kindergarten and now you are running this NGO and you've done all these other things. How did you know what to do? I remember in 2011, like early April, looking around and going, wow, like everything I learned as a teacher, I am applying to this task. And I realized I was really good at coordinating big groups of people and getting them to come together and focus on one activity, which is essentially what you're doing with a room full of 30 children, right? Right navigating them through places and also looking for opportunities for them to have, you know, synapses of, of aha moments. Essentially that's what a kindergarten teacher is doing, right? Setting up spaces for these children's brains to grow. So I found that that experience and that knowledge really was actually completely transferable, except now I was dealing with, you know, business owners, politicians, volunteers, corporates, and complete, and also like, you know, um, firefighters and those type of stakeholders. So I, that was the first level, and that worked fine for the emergency rescue phase. But when we started moving into economic enhancement, I was completely out of my depth. I was treading water, and I remember coming to Tokyo going, oh, my God, how do I figure this out? But then I found a community uh, of women. This was when I discovered this community called Few, 
And there I met other business owners and entrepreneurs and tax accountants and all different type of people who I could ask questions, workshops I could go to. Of course, I, I started Googling everything. And then I also on the ground in Tohoku met many, many leaders in this field. So whether it was an NPO leader or a disaster, you know, emergency, um, how do you say, veteran from the U.S. or academic, academia, firefighters. And I just absorbed like a sponge. I asked questions. I wrote emails. I pretty much just like as I went, I applied all my knowledge. And then I took a course in NPO management it's probably the least learning, the least effective <laughs> learning that I did, to be honest. Um, but everything else was really finding mentors, I suppose. Yeah, so I guess it was a mix of the baptism by fire, like actually having to do it. Yes. Finding your way, having some skills that you realized were transferable, asking questions and and, being and failing forward. And so failing I, I would forward. do my best yeah. and then get yeah. feedback and go, ah, okay, let me try that again. And and I apply that from everything to like building a logistics, uh, how do you say, like roster of drop-offs for supplies to, you know, applying for grants. And I would, I would like email and I had, and you know, I met so many wonderful people who were so happy to provide feedback from, and a lot of these were like professors in this field. Well, there you go. I, like, if we can take one thing from this this uh, discussion that we've had today is, yeah, let's just fail forward. Let's just lean into yeah. it and and ask questions and ask for help as you go and look where you can and, end up. Yeah. Yeah, because then I applied that same thing to when I heard of the term CSR. And I had companies coming and asking me to organize, you know, a volunteer weekend. And I was like, what is this CSR thing? And so I just, I Googled it. I read everything I could on it, watched videos on YouTube. And, you know, in 2016, I ended up going into corporate and working as a CSR manager because at that time I was, the, the, the donations weren't working and, and I was not surviving, honestly, that, that year was really tough in 2015. Um, but because of that year, it forced me to, again, sort of grow beyond my current skills. And then I ended up becoming a CSR manager and becoming a thought leader in sustainability, which is a subject I didn't even know existed 10 years ago. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, so you now, so now you do a bit of both. You're, you can, you work in corporate and you've actually written a book on this, haven't you? Yes. Uh, yeah, I called it about this book. Yeah. So I have, I was interviewed in 2014 on my experience and, and, you know, some of the dramatic stories that I've shared with you um, times 100 because I have stories from so many survivors. And I always wanted to write the story of what happened in 311 from that on the ground perspective. And I thought about doing this for many years. And finally, at the end of 2019, I decided to get started on it. And it was, oh, it was like nails on a blackboard or like, I was so difficult. I didn't know where to start and how to organize my thoughts. And, and I took a break. And then one day I went back in and I suddenly saw eight principles that I could extract from all these stories that would be awesome if my, if other people knew these eight principles, they could become effective leaders in social impact too. And I was like, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? So it evolved from this idea of creating like a dramatic memoir to a practical guide for how to become a leader in social impact. So I named it Place to Grow, Eight Principles That Will Make You an Effective Leader in Social Impact. And, um, and that book just, just I, I mean, I remember when it appeared, because we're mm. part of a similar group, of a group, and um, you were like, here's my book. And I was like, what? Where, where did this come from? And it was... Was, and I think even our our leader said itself like where, where this is like magic it's just appeared so yeah you you found these eight principles to that can help anyone to get started in this area if they're you're thinking about becoming a leader in social impact that's different from just like showing up and volunteering right yes because a lot of you know there's so many myths around um, nonprofit and volunteering and so many ideas around so like you mentioned for example like volunteers showing up are not always the answer. I like, I remember in the early days, there was more problems because volunteers would show up and step on a nail and then have to go to the hospital, you know? And so 
there's so many th- aspects or like my story of like, I thought I was going to go down there and drop off these, these supplies to the mothers and they would be happy and grateful and then everything would be solved. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot more complexity to helping people and how, where's the line between supporting somebody and then enabling them to become a victim because they get into a habit of just receiving stuff for free, for example, or they start looking at themselves long-term going, yes, this horrible thing happened to me and now I really can't rebuild my life. And so there's, there's a lot of um, gray area here that I think you should be aware of if you're trying to um, be long-term impact in that space. So essentially the book is going to help you understand this. And I share like real life stories for each principle that sort of like bring it to life. And then I I have like a takeaway sort of summary of what that means and how you can apply it to other aspects of this field. So what would be your top tip for anyone who's just, who's thinking about this? What's the 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 one thing you would say? Oh God. (laughs) You should narrow it down. So, okay, it really depends on where you're at. So let me let me give two with two examples, if I may. Hmm. So if you're in the place where you're kind of like, I really want to do something, but I don't know where to start or what to do, then it's the first principle, which is you matter when you choose to, and that you, at some point, you you have to take the step before you're ready. And you have to realize that if you want to make a difference in that field, then you have to choose that. And that's going to require simple things like becoming really knowledgeable about that field. But it all starts with just a very clear decision to do that. You don't need to necessarily have other, like you cannot rely on external validation for this. Yeah, that's a good but one, isn't it? Like, why are you doing this? Is you want this because you think it's going to make everybody happy? And no, it has to be, there has to be more to it than that. And then the other one I will say is if you're already quite knowledgeable in social impact or are already working in social impact, then I would say my principle five, which is what does my ego have to do with it, is incredibly important because there's no long-term success without partnerships. And that means you're basically, it isn't about you or your skills. It is about creating spaces for these conversations to happen and taking people where they're at. So you really have to take your ego out of it and, and continue to push to create that space for these other stakeholders to grow. And, um, you know, you, I've seen so many nonprofits and projects just mirror sort of the, the capitalistic business approach, which is... Um, What's the benefit for us and us alone? Thank you for sharing your wisdom on that. And if anybody was wanting to read the book, where do they go to find out about it? Oh, you can find this on Amazon. Just type in Place to Grow Eight Principles and it will come up. Excellent. That's easy. Yeah. And is it paperback or? Yes, paperback. It's Mm -hmm. quite a light read. You could probably read it in like two hours. Okay. Yeah. And so that's good. You don't need if, to spend weeks reading. No, <laughs> no. It's started. meant to be like really practical. And I put in um, a blank pages in the back because I wanted people to be able to like write down their expectations or ideas around social impact at first, then read the book and then again, journal on if anything changed in their perception on it. So it's kind of a notebook slash checklist book. Mm, mm. <laughs> Stories. Okay, so from your, you know, position where you are right now, um, and, you know, given that we just had a, a bit of a, a shake-up a, a couple of days ago with rather a big earthquake, to refresh our memories, what what is something that you feel is needed now as we go forward? We're from, you know, it's 10 years on. What's mm. needed now, do you feel? Like we've gone from needing nappies and milk and clothing and somewhere to live to where we are today. So this is where these last 10 years of being part of the journey of survivors, you know, as a third party, but being part of their family as they struggle to rebuild and, and seeing the blood, sweat and tears that goes into recreating house and home, not just house and home, but also community, family, neighbors, and then it gets larger and larger, right? 
Um, this is really just put a firm belief for me that we need to have more awareness on how important community is for us and then have that sense of like, I'm part of that. And that means I can contribute. It doesn't matter where I am. And this last earthquake that happened just reminded me so clearly that one, I know for a fact that one thing that is going to help just even a little bit, like help survivors who are going through this one is to get those messages from their now big community that's all over the world, these texts on social media, just saying, hey, are you okay? Or what can I do? Um, that kind of communication that I've seen happen between volunteers and survivors all over Japan has made me believe that that's really where it's at. You know, people inspire people. And being there for people when life is difficult is what we can do. And one of the valuable things that we can do and sustainable things, because we can't always be there on the front line you know, physically supporting people. And that's not really necessarily what's needed long-term, but we can, we can continue to like be that wind on that. We can be in the background saying, Oh, don't, you know, I haven't forgotten that it's difficult. I'm sending you, you know, bag of apples or, you know, whatever it is, we can make them feel like they're not forgotten and they're part of something bigger. Yeah. I think that's really important. And yeah, as we had this reminder just two days ago, getting those messages from friends just coming in straight away was just so heartwarming. Are you okay? And I was sitting here in my house like, it's completely fine here thinking I, I don't deserve all of these messages. Like I just happened to be sitting in my house, which is really close to the epicenter, but um, it was just so yeah, heartwarming is the, is the word that comes to mind. Heartwarming to have people mm. reach out and say, "Are you okay? I hope you're okay. What do you need?" Um, even though, you know, it, luckily there was no major damage or tsunami this time around. Yeah, and hopefully all of the cooling rods are still working how they work up in the other <laughs> new yes. plants. Yeah. And yes, that so, was so relieving. <laughs> I immediately was like, "Oh my god, no!" Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fun times. So thank you to everyone who reached out and said, are you okay? I mean, yeah, I had messages coming in from all over the world. Um, and that, and I think we were actually just talking about this briefly before we started record, recording, weren't we? That that was kind of one of the big differences we noticed between 2000, 2011 and two days ago was just being able to get in contact with people and check in and say, are you okay? And get an answer back straight away and yeah, a huge difference that makes. Yes, yes, massive. On both sides, I think, too. Definitely. And that was the thing. And, you know, I've just moved back to Fukushima after being away in Sweden for a year, which I don't know, you probably haven't heard any of the drama around how many times I had to relocate during the COVID um, drama. I did but, hear some, um, yeah. yeah it's like you were the one person still traveling everywhere. Yeah, yeah right. I'm like, <laughs> seriously, I would just want to stay where I am, but yeah, I'm being sent back again. <laughs> so um, I just really felt like, gee, guys, I'm really sorry that you have to that I'm putting you through this almost. It was sort of the feeling I had on Saturday night. It was like, here we go again. <laughs> I'm oh. sorry, my, my family and friends, that you have to check in with me again. I'm okay. Uh, Fukushima, we really have to work on our relationship. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not how you welcome me back. Um, yeah, this is not this first time I've come back. Like, actually, when I um, I left Fukushima, because of the nuclear meltdown happening and me being pregnant and my actual, the hospital where I was due to give birth to my daughter was closed because there's no water. Mm. And I, we had no water in our house for a month. Um, in the end, it turned out there was, the water was cut off for a month and the clinic is very nearby. So they would have been unable to open for a month either. And so I left and thinking, oh, well, at least I can leave. I'll go somewhere else and be a pregnant woman. That's not, you know, a drain on on the very minimal hospitals and, you know, medical system here in, in Fukushima. So I went to Totori and then I went to New Zealand because I was like, I'm sorry, I cannot just, I cannot stay here um, mm. with my in-laws. I don't, I'm, you know, this is, my husband had to go back to work. So he came back to Fukushima and lived in our house with no water. But I said, no, I'm not going back to that. I'm too traumatized. I'm going to New Zealand. And mm. yeah, so I, my daughter was actually born 
in New Zealand. And when we ca- and the point of the story is that when we came back, um, finally, and I think it was in, uh, just in time for a bomb mm-hmm. uh, in August. So what are we talking? March, April, May, June, and a few months later. Anyway, I can't even calculate. <laughs> I'm back in August. It's like the start of August, and I we got back into you know we stayed one night we've been here one night and woke up to the most horrific aftershock the next morning and i was just like oh come on <laughs> seriously oh my goodness. like it was a it was a gokyo or like a or a mm. gojaku or something it was a really big one and i'm holding my brand new daughter and i'm a new mother and i'm like just no come on <laughs> oh my god yeah oh. so yeah me and, like i'm i I do love Fukushima and when it's not shaking and, and carrying on like this. And it, it's only just the last 10 years that it's tested me a lot. The first 10 years were pretty uneventful, I have to say. Mm. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. My sister used to live in Shirakawa in Fukushima. Okay. Mm-hmm. So again, like there's, and so like one of my nieces was born there and I remember visiting and I remember we used to go down to one of the beaches a beautiful country and so, like, there were so many personal ties, I think, to the region that that kind of – that's probably what also keeps me sort of – it's now become like a hometown. So I, I really feel you when you're like, oh, my God, no. Yeah. Why do you do this to me? <laughs> Why are these earthquakes? And then on the news, they were like, oh, well, it's pretty normal for us to have an aftershock like this 10 years later. I'm like, really? Why, twin. Yeah. <laughs> Why, Why did you say this, you know, last year so we could get prepared? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's a great – a great reminder to everyone get prepared mm. you know look what can happen it's just not yeah and, not and just to point. reiterate Short. have preparedness plans it doesn't matter if you're in the city or not it's so important to have a plan of action where are you going to meet if your family is dispersed you know where are we going um what is what is our you know operation for how we get in contact and you know we can go 10 years without something to remind us of this but it's so important to have when that moment does come Definitely. Yeah. Refresh your memory on all of these things and mm. your supplies and, and yeah, everyone's situation is different. I don't live in a city like Tokyo. And so uh, my situation, how I would react is going to be different to how you, uh, you know, someone in Tokyo is going to have to deal with situations. So yeah, learn for your, where you are, like all of the things that you're reading online might ne- not necessarily be enough for you. Even, mm. yeah, think about how your situation is different. Where do you live? Are you near a coastline or a, a hillside that might come down or whatever? Um, something else we've had to experience here recently. A flood. Yeah. Yes. Floods, um, yes. Flooding was horrific two years ago here as well. So, yeah. And even on though I live on a hill, we had cars that were flooded on a hill. Can you believe it? Mm. Like, like oh there's so goodness. much rain. Like just a small um, sink, sort of dip in the road is where people that water gathered and cars got flooded and couldn't move on a hill. <laughs> we, wow. we thought, you know, you know, there's no danger of floods around here. Not true. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> was it the, like the firemen that are first there to support people or how, how did that pan out for you? Like in this, in the situation of the flood, et cetera, like, is it neighbors checking on each other or were the firemen, you know, coming around or the police, et cetera? Um, so I'm very lucky and my incredibly smart husband built our house on a very safe hill. So I did not experience any of the floods, but um, I was actually, I was like commander of the information or something for foreigners mm. during that time. Um, so I, I'm not really sure, but this, I mean, there just aren't enough first responders are there and when these things happen because there's so many mm. people involved in such a huge um, area is involved generally. So it, it comes down to neighbors looking out for each other. And that is something yes. that I really noticed during 311 um, was that neighbors were looking out for each other. They banded together to, you know, do a, like what it is, a, like um, cook for the neighborhood, you know, like yes. a huge pot. Yes. I don't know where they get these huge pots from, but, you know, the huge pots come out and they start cooking up all these things so that everybody has something to eat and everybody shares what they have, which is what you gave that example of not being able to drop off the stuff at the, having mm-hmm. to drop everything at the central place so that it all got shared out. You know, everybody shares what they have and um, so everybody can have enough or have something rather than some people having nothing. And I think that's really important. So, um, you know, finding out where you can tap into that and and help out 
is really important um, when that's when that sort of thing happens. If you are unaffected, yeah, you can tap into a neighbourhood group and and get something happening straight away. Yeah, get some food. Yeah. in front of people. I was going to say, like, if there are so. people listening who are really interested in in this this field, or let's say specifically with like disaster recovery support. One tip I would have for them is to understand that there are cultural specific, like pre-existing um, structures in place that that um, kind of spring up when a disaster happens. And a lot of people think they need to be the one to go there and provide solutions hmm. or supplies or product or money. And those are all great, but it's it would be far more valuable if they could connect with those existing structures. And you can do this now just through social media. Like someone could email you and say, hey, we can send up five bags of rice for the community. And you yeah. would be able to communicate that to your neighbor. And that's a very effective way of direct support. Um, but it's not always thought of by, like, you know, people who really wish to do well but but don't know how. So Yeah, know. that's so true. Like, even in this neighborhood where I live, there is a, you know, there's an uh, – if something will happen, then – some certain people will step up and lead all of us because that's their job. And it's yeah. And thanks and, to three eleven, they put together like um, volunteer centers, pretty much every city office will have a volunteer center, like Madoguchi um, point of contact that you can, you can find information from. Yes, definitely. Yep. They definitely spring up um, when needed, like two days ago. Yeah. Ours is, yeah. is, is, is working at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are some excellent ideas. Yeah. If something does happen and you find that you want to, to help out in some way, that's how you can do it yeah more effectively i definitely think so yeah no need to like lead the cavalry here exactly. <laughs> let's just say um. <laughs> like and that's why i feel a lot of people like will text me after you know an earthquake or a flooding and they'll be like oh what, what are you going to do and i'm like no that was a very unique experience but it's not really my place to go in there again but also it's because i've no i've been privy to 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 know of some of the growth that Japan has had as a society and working between government and local government and nonprofit and, you know, the emergency management team that they, they do have these structures in place. And I understand that that's no longer my role. Yeah. Um, we've come a long way. That's for sure. Yeah, We have, we definitely have. I'm very grateful for that as well. Just like as a, as a person who saw so much sadness because we weren't prepared in 2011. Yeah. To society, yeah. and you know, we had our prime minister resign three months in, and it was just so chaotic. And I really felt for for those trying to rebuild house and home when you know the structure you're meant to rely on is not there to support you. Exactly. Yeah, it was a long road to get back mm -hmm. to where we are today. Yeah, but um, I think yeah, it's, it's it is testament to what Japan has achieved. It's a lot of reconstruction. It's just amazing the things that they've they've done in the mm -hmm. last ten years, like on such a huge chunk of our this country. Yeah, yes, <laughs> but you know, I hear from yeah local leaders who say you know it's been ten years and they feel like they're finally back on their feet. So the real sort of like rebuilding of the community will some of these towns still live like outlast is not yet de decided. They feel like they're just getting started. And I feel like, yeah, that's that's one of the messages I have for, for listeners is that there's still so many ways. It's in the soft skills, right? Becoming a community member, even from afar, uh, buying the rice from the locals or, or visiting when and if COVID allows us. These are all ways that you can support communities that are still trying to now rebuild the what it means to live in that town. What is the identity of those local communities um, and how do they continue to have like the summer festivals and, and the, the the culture that made him, made it such a great place to be? That's like from now. Yes, definitely. I totally agree. So, yeah, we here in Fukushima, we appreciate visitors when COVID is not happening. You're very welcome to come and see us here. <laughs> and actually, like people in Fukushima are just desperate for visitors. It's uh, yeah. It's it's been a problem before COVID. So um, yes, yeah. yeah. I cycled uh, through there a few months ago, um, which Did you I go I think, on the coast or yeah. I started in Hachinohe. I was trying to do the Michinoku Trail, but I found okay. out quite quickly that it's not really a bicycle trail. <laughs> so um, well, we've got a new bicycle trail that goes right through along the coast of Iwaki City now, and oh, exciting because I finished in Soma, yeah. so I okay. think it's a little. So I would love to go down there and then finish that coastline. I was actually talking to my fiance about that. Yeah. So 
yeah, any time from sort of, I think it's finished now. You can cycle mm. the whole, it's 50 kilometers or something. Cool. Of course, that they have just finished recently. Um, yeah, all places that were completely damaged, you can now cycle the whole coast. And, and Oh, that sounds yeah, awesome. Okay, I will be in touch on those details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can definitely point you in the right direction. So, Well, thank you so much. I think that is a fantastic place to finish our episode today, don't you? It's been I, I've just been have I've had goosebumps. I've had tears. I've, it's been a, a, such a moving episode. Thank you for sharing um, so wholeheartedly your experience and the experience of your family through all of this. And I'm so thankful that we have people like you in this country, <laughs> Angela, who step up when oh. other us when other people just can't. You know. Um, yeah, I'm really grateful for that. So thank you so much. And I look forward to, yeah, being in touch with you more now. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you so much. This has been an experience. I'm really grateful. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was the interview with Angela. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I certainly had a great time listening to her experiences. And I know she only just really scratched the surface of all of the things that she experienced through helping people in the disaster zone since March 11, 2011. So something I feel that is important we can take away from today's discussion was what she said about, you know, creating your own, you know, if you're interested in leading and creating your own, um, social impact organization, then definitely check out her book, The Eight Principles That Will Make You an Effective Leader in Social Impact. And some of the advice, those towards the end of the episode where she mentioned, for example, not becoming a liability as a volunteer when you're going into situations, it's very easy to go from wanting, you know, going in there expecting to help, but ending up being a liability, um, potentially injuring yourself or, you know, having to be supported by a system that's already struggling. And also tapping into those organizations that actually do exist, we just maybe don't know that they're there until something happens like a tsunami or a flood or something that's on the TV just today is fires, wildfires, mountain fires happening in Tochigi. So yeah, those things, when those things happen, uh, things spring up, organizations get uh, start moving and things start to happen. So tapping into those organizations that are already in place and seeing how you can be of help is really amazing. And now we have so much uh, social media, it's easier to get in contact with these places and say, how can I help? What do you need? Where do I send it to? That sort of thing. So thank you so much for tuning in again. I have more amazing women coming to you soon. And I'm very much looking forward to introducing you to a super cool guest. And everybody says she's so cool. And you'll just have to wait and see who it is. But let's just say this lady, well, this woman, she's so amazing. She swims with sharks. And yeah, I'll leave it at that. So uh, tune in again soon. Thank you so much. And we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.